the importance of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection. This is, I thought about all the sermons I've preached over the years on the resurrection and on Easter Sundays that we've gathered. And um, I'd like to go to the Gospels, obviously, and read the historical account of that day when uh, at dawn they came to the tomb and there they found it empty. After really, I think, the saddest time on, in all of earth's history when on that uh, three days before that when Christ died on the cross. And that's how people left the cross. They left with a dead Savior. Thinking that this had been the one. And somehow death had taken him. The great enemy has overtaken him. And yet that wasn't the case. On that third day Right there at the dawn, they came, they found the tomb empty, and then the resurrected Savior, Jesus, appeared to them and appears also, in the sense, by faith to us as we read his word and we go through that. But the resurrection is one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. It, without the resurrection of Christ, there really is no Christian faith. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then we of all people are most miserable. And that's the way we should be. I think some Christians that are miserable probably don't believe in the resurrection, all right? And they aren't really Christians. You might just have yourself in name only. And I can say that sometimes that's what happens. I'm sure that today there are churches all over the world that have, uh, some have already had their services and some will. And there are lots of people that come to those services because it's the thing they do once a year or twice a year. They don't really know who Jesus is and why he came and that he rose from the dead. And it's very, very important doctrine. Over 300 times in the scriptures, there are verses that deal with the resurrection of the Messiah. 300 verses. I'm not going to cover all 300 this morning. And you guys were worried. I could tell. The faces changed. Oh, no. You know how many points he has when he says 300, right? But uh, anyways, I'm only going to cover about 280. So how about that? No. But uh, there are a number of things. I just want to look at them and, and go through what the scriptures talk about in regard to the resurrection and why the resurrection is central. First and foremost, the resurrection, the, the very resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a sign to the unbelieving world. It is the only sign, actually, that he promised that he would give. Back there in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus said this, and it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now I can just say this, that we live in a world where people are infatuated with signs and sometimes spirituality, but not necessarily good things and not good spirits. All right, uh, As in, they are infatuated with the spiritual realm, but not the Savior, the one who controls all things the creator God. He says, they said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Boy, that could be the commentary of our day, right? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And uh, that is Jesus foretelling his death, but also his resurrection. 
Because what happened after those three days of Jonah being in the fish's belly? He was spat up, in that case, on dry land. He went on to proclaim God's word. And it was a picture, a sign to an unbelieving nation, Nineveh. And that we find out at the preaching of Jonah, Nineveh repented. So the resurrection, in many ways, is a sign, not only a sign as a sense of that God is in control, and you better be careful because he's also the great judge, but he also is the one that commands all to repent. And the resurrection reminds an unbelieving world and unbelievers that there needs to be a repentance and a turning towards him. And he said, that's the only sign that will be given. We find out that that was the case also with even some of those that were the closest to him. These were the disciples, you remember. And after the resurrection account, uh, Jesus is on the resurrection day, that some had seen him, and uh, Thomas had yet to see the Lord resurrected. And Thomas, we haven't called him Doubting Thomas, although I think Thomas was a follower of Christ, And he didn't fully understand everything about the resurrection. He didn't even, maybe he wasn't listening when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He was referring to the temple of his body. Not the the earthly temple that the Jews had built, but rather his own body. Maybe Thomas was asleep that day. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't there. But whatever happened between the time that Jesus died on the cross and was buried, and now the third day, Thomas had... Well, he was no longer believing. That's, that's what I would say. And he was not, he had maybe not had that aspect of faith yet. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst, and he said, Peace to you. He would have said, Shalom, in one word. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's, that's you folks, if you're a believer in Christ. You haven't touched his hands. You haven't been able to handle his flesh or sat with him at a meal. But you've believed. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe. And I'm glad that he does that. But you know, there is this idea that the resurrection also is a sign to doubting believers, maybe. Or believers, uh, unbelievers that have yet to do that, right? And the resurrection really uh, changed everything for Thomas. Sometimes we call him Doubting Thomas, and that stuck, I think, a little bit of a... uh, Whenever I hear of the disciples and I hear of Thomas's name, that's the first kind of phrase that comes to mind and it shouldn't because he was a great according to what uh, church history says he actually went out like all the other apostles after they were commissioned to go out and um, Thomas laid his life down in a martyrdom 
And I really say this, when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, he didn't turn back after that. He believed he was in the presence of the resurrected Christ. He actually felt and handled him. He actually sat with him. He taught, was learning from him over that, those days until the ascension of Christ. He did all of that. And I often think of that. And then the, the, uh, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, Thomas went as far as India, that region, and there, as he preached against idolatry, he, the idolaters actually stoned him to death and killed him. And so um, he believed. <laughs> and he went to his death believing. Why else would you go to a hostile group of people and do things like that? And, of course, the last 2,000 years of history is filled with those kinds of stories of Christians who truly believed. And they went out and some of them sadly had to lay down their lives as a witness to what he did. The resurrection is an answer to unbelievers and also to doubting believers as well. In Luke chapter 24, we have this, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Anybody here ever have any doubts? Can I tell you that that's one of those questions that comes to pastors sometimes? I don't know. Sometimes all kinds of weird questions come to me. But, but there are times I've had people say, do you ever doubt? I mean, you're a pastor. Pastors don't doubt, right? Well, there are days I doubt. Hey, I, sorry. Probably, probably surprise you. But there are times that life arises and there's certain things that happen in life. And those things kind of cloud our... Are they're, they're like cloudy days, right? You can't see the sun. You know it's there. But... You just wonder, is this what my day is going to be like? And those doubts creep in, don't they? And you know how you, you get rid of those doubts? You get back into the Word of God. You get back into the, the story and the central doctrines of the Christian faith, which include the resurrection. And I believe today because I know I serve a risen Savior. And He is in the world today, isn't He? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Now that's important that Jesus said that because what he was saying is that I'm not just an apparition. See, that was taught like, oh, he was just a ghost. They saw something, you know, a phantom or something and it wasn't really someone in the flesh. But Jesus says, I myself. By the way, when you, you and I die, we're still ourselves, <laughs> okay? You don't turn into something else. You'll still be you. If you're a believer, you will be, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, you'll be going into the presence of God and experience things in, in joy, of fullness of joy that you've never experienced before. You're still yourself. Uh, your redeemed self, purified self, matter of fact, a better self, and the resurrection teaches about that. I think it was Ben Franklin who, um, uh, in his lighter moments, and I would not say Ben Franklin, don't get your theology from him. He had a lot of weird things that he sort of wrote about, and, and I'm not sure exactly where he would fall, but he did seem to believe in a resurrection because he wrote this before his, in his, before his death. He wrote his own epitaph. Now, I don't think it was put on his tombstone, but this is what he wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printed like the cover of an old book, its contents torn and its script of its lettering, or stripped of its lettering and gilding. 
lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new, more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. You know, we do know that his resurrection for the believer it guarantees our resurrection and someday it will be amended by the author, right? Amen. Corrected. Oh, amen. We need that, don't we? Well, a lot more could be said on that. But Jesus goes on to say, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And he did. He had flesh and bone. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate in their presence. Doesn't sound like the Easter breakfast we had this morning, but it was food, wasn't it? And it was good. And there Jesus sat with them in his resurrected body, A body that you could handle and touch and feel. A body that could sit and eat with you and be fully himself. And that's why when someday our bodies are resurrected and made new and joined to our soul and spirit again at that resurrection. Listen, eternally we'll be like that. And I believe in heaven. We know from the book of Revelation there'll be a great marriage supper of the Lamb. You're going to eat in heaven. That's a good thing. You don't have to worry about the diet plan either, you know. It's going to be just right. I'm glad. I can't wait for that kind of meal. That's going to be good. Wow. Well, some more things. We find out also the resurrection serves as a guarantee that Jesus' teachings were true. If he didn't raise from the dead, then everything that he taught us was a lie. That's the other side of that. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, this is when Peter stood up and preached. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Now, that was not one of those sermons that tickled the ears, okay? He's standing in front of thousands of people, and Peter preaches a message, and he looks out at that crowd, and he says, you took the Messiah, and you put him on a cross. That's what happened. That's, I'm paraphrasing. But look what he says. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Sometimes it's easy to point to them 2,000 years ago. Yeah, they did that. no. I did that. And you did that. My sin put Jesus on the cross. That's why it says him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God had a plan. And his plan included me and you. And the people there 2,000 years ago at the cross. And the plan that he would, the cross would not be the end. He would be buried and on the third day he would be raised up. Never to have death visit him again. Belief. 
whom God raised up. That's what he goes on to say, whom God raised up. See, the very first message recorded in the Bible of any of the apostles is Peter's sermon. By the way, 3,000 people get saved at the end of this sermon. That's a lot. I don't know what we'd do if we had 3,000 people all of a sudden just become Christians and then decide they're all going to come in one spot. We would have to definitely build a bigger building. We'd have to be outside. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Loosed them. Isn't that great? See, death's our great enemy. And it's a painful enemy, isn't it? It's painful for those of us that have yet to experience death as we watch others die. Or we experience the loss of a loved one. Some of you had some very hard losses. Some of them right this time of year. The pains of death. But Jesus has loosed them. He's let them go. And I'm so glad. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, he wrote this. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? So true, isn't it? The resurrection guarantees us the truth of what Jesus taught is is a, a guarantee of those things, isn't it? And he says, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's death. For David says concerning him, he's quoting from the Old Testament, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, that's the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. David looked ahead to a Savior who would come someday, a Savior who would pay the price of his sin and would be raised again from the dead. A thousand years before the resurrection of Christ, David foresaw that as God had showed him those things. We know that it is a guarantee of those things. It is also the center of the gospel itself. The center of the gospel itself. Romans chapter 4, and I say the gospel, the gospel is the good news of salvation. It's the good news that someone took my place because the wages of sin is death and I deserve to die because I sinned. And yet someone took my place. Look what he's in Romans 4. Paul says this. But also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered up because of our offenses. What that means is just that. An innocent man went to the very court of God the righteous judge who always judges right and presented himself an offering of sin 
perfect and sinless, and he there paid the debt of sin, which was death. Not only just an easy death, if there's such a thing, but a most horrendous death, the death of the cross. The most ima- uh, you can't even imagine the suffering that would come out of that. As I've said before, and I've said it I, I, every time I come to this, the Romans came up with a new word in Latin, excrucio, or excruciation. We talked about that, excruciating pain. It means out of the cross. It was a, a way to describe the kind of pain and dying that would occur on a Roman cross. And yet, he did it for us. My offense. And was raised because of our justification. The word justification means to be declared righteous. You, if you're a believer in Christ, by faith you've been declared righteous. And sin was imputed to him, but righteousness was imputed to us who believe. That's the great transaction that took place because of the Savior and his sacrifice. Again in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's so easy on our part. It's not easy. It, was, it cost God the Son his very life. But if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. See the resurrection central. You cannot be saved without believing in the resurrection. Wow. You will be saved. It's the center of the gospel. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and that he arose or rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Christ died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again in accordance with what God had already for determined or predetermined that the son would go there to the cross and he would do that and he would be raised again the resurrection is also the impetus for evangelism evangelism is the telling forth of that good news of the gospel right The telling forth. It is the impetus. It is the reason we go. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission verse here, one of the Great Commission verses, Jesus came and spoke to them. This is the resurrected Christ, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. When Jesus commanded his disciples to go out, he did so, commanding them, making sure they understood that that he had the power and authority to do that. And his resurrection guarantees that. Because it's one thing to say, 
All right, I want you to go do something. This is Jack Karen speaking here. I'm going to tell you, you go out and you do this. Well, there's only one problem with that. Someday Jack Karen's not going to be around in this state anymore. All right? My authority is limited. For one thing, you might not even listen to me. But you know what? Jesus is with us always. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the book of Hebrews says. His resurrection guarantees that he is with us until the end of the age, until the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. Acts chapter 10, verse 39, And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that, through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. There, Peter, at the heart of his message again, is again the resurrected Christ, and then they had that authority to go out, and again, the basis of that authority was really found in God's word, and he quotes from the Old Testament, or he alludes to it there, but he quotes directly elsewhere. The resurrection also is an indication of the believer's daily power. The, the resurrection and the faith that we have in Christ leads us to obedience, and it leads us to do what we really believe. In other words, if Jesus rose from the dead and he commands us to live certain ways and we believe that, we should do that. We, that, that is a natural thing. You do what you believe. We need to. Romans chapter 6. I won't read all these verses, but... <clears throat> Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. I believe he's teaching here, not the water baptism, but what we call spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is the identification with God at the moment of salvation. When you you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, not only were your sins forgiven, but you were identified with him. You said, I believe, Lord, and, and you have now identified with him and him with you. The unrighteous with the righteous and the righteous now is with you. And think of that, the identification doctrines. Baptism unto death. And that's what baptism by water immersion pictures. Pictures what should have already gone on in the heart, in the life of the believer who says, I identify with Christ, I'm buried with him in those waters of death, and then I'm raised up to walk in newness of life. And that's what's pictured. It should have already gone on, though, by the Holy Spirit. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We should walk in newness of life. Are you walking in that newness of life? If you believe in the resurrection, it should compel you to do so. Romans chapter 8 says this, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know, I really believe that when a person, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he was saying there, he's talking about a new birth, a birth from above, a newness of life that comes from his resurrection, his power. It comes from him. And we're able to walk in the Holy Spirit, yielded to him now uh, by faith. And in doing so, we really demonstrate the power of the newness of that, of that life, right? We do. And we could say more on that. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul wanted to know the power of his resurrection. I don't think Paul was talking there solely about... Um, just the fact that someday he himself, his body would be raised. Paul believed that. He wrote of those things. But he also wanted to live in the present tense. The power of his resurrection presently. That should be something that we live with on a daily basis. And we do that. It is also the reason for total commitment. Total commitment. Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. There Paul uses the imagery of a marriage. And in a marriage, you should be committed to one another. And he says it was from that body of Christ, right? The raised, who, to him who has raised, was raised from the dead, and we should bear fruit. And that's part of that newness of life as well. Spiritual fruit. Total commitment. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in, or in vain in the Lord. Right? And I'm telling you, that is why we live, or we should, for the glory of God. It's why you get up at whatever it was this morning. I think all the men, we all decided that it was like 3 a.m. Or, or so. I, I don't know. Anybody wake up before 3 a.m.? Just, <clears throat> when, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and try to turn over and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, thank you, um, especially Paul and Guy. I mentioned them earlier. Uh, while they were out of the room cleaning up still. But, you know, why would you get up early in the morning to go and cook a meal for a whole bunch of people? Well, because you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what it does. The resurrection gets you out of bed in the morning, whatever time that is. Or maybe it's in the afternoon. I don't know when you get up. But you know what? Should get us to get the Christian motivated for the rest of their day. And it should be the last part of our night as we go to sleep that we're thinking about the Lord. Because he's alive. He's real. And he's powerful. And he wants to have that kind of relationship with you as well. Well, the resurrection uh, even addresses the fear of death. I often think of the fear of death. I think that's part of the problem of maybe we live in a much more materialistic world. A world that is 
far healthier than it's been, although some would argue maybe, not, maybe you're not healthy, I don't know, or you know people that aren't. Obviously, we still have death, though, that knocks at our door. Although um, it doesn't, like World War, right after World War I, all right, the average life expectancy in France was about age 30, all right? Because there were so many young men that had been killed in the war and also through disease, you know, the great flu pandemic that affected so many and all of that. And so their average lifespan was, at, that was less, you know, well, just over 100 years ago, was only 30 years old if you lived in France. Of course, they faced great losses in World War II just a generation later and, and, and again. And since that time in the world, we haven't really seen a lot of those kind of things. We've seen wars and pestilences and things like that. But sometimes we get into a little bit of a slumber that somehow death's not going to visit us. Or, and, and to think about it is fearful. I was watching something on the History Channel about the medieval times. And one thing that was said about that time, and back then the average life expectancy was just over 30 also. All right, People lived a much fuller life because they realized they didn't have a lot of years. And so when you were 20... You were working hard and you were, you know, doing, uh, raising a family at that point, if you could. Those kind of things. And people were much more serious about life early on. Today we hold all those important things back, thinking somehow I'm going to escape death. And eventually you just get old and you haven't lived life. People then, it was also said of them because of the writings and others that they had less fear of death because there was so much of it around. You know, in the 14-whatever, mid-1400s, there was the great bubonic plague epidemic and 60% of some regions of Europe died. 60%. Imagine the saying, take 60% of us out of here, boom, just like that. And that's how it was. For a space of about three years, that just swept across Europe And entire regions just lost their people. And you know, people came to understand that death is going to visit them. And so you know what? It drove many to live more for heaven. And there's a lot of hymns that came out of that time. There were a lot of of things, you know, stuff I wouldn't necessarily buy into all the theology that came out of that and everything. But there was far more depth in some ways because people faced death and they faced it without the great fear that sometimes we do. To say that, though, we don't have to be fearful of death. Death is not something that we look for or seek after, but it is not something that should just scare us into a place where we do nothing. The resurrection reminds us that even the worst thing that can happen to you, death, is but an entrance into glory and into a better world. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells of the time when he was driving with his children to his wife's funeral. He was going to go there to preach the sermon at his wife's funeral. He says this, as we came into one small town, there strode down in front of us a truck that came to a stop before a red light. 
It was the biggest truck I ever saw in my life. And the sun was shining on it at just the right angle that took its shadow and spread it across the snow and on the field beside it. As the shadow covered that field, I said, Look, children, on that truck and look at its shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? My youngest child said, The shadow couldn't hurt anybody. That's right, I continued. And death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus. Only the shadow is gone over, mother. You know, that is so true. Jesus took all the fear of death, and he took it upon himself, and he has gone before us as our forerunner. And I don't have to go through death alone. Oh, you may die somewhere in this world alone with no other human being around you that way. But there is one who is a man, but he's the God man. And he promises to be with you even in death. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him, who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There are people that are subject to bondage their whole life because they're afraid of dying. And you know, as a Christian, we don't have to be in bondage to it. Too often, that's the way it is. We're more afraid of the actual thought of it than what actually would occur it also provides for us um, the model of our own resurrection the coming of the lord there's a bunch of things here i'll go ahead here but we also have uh, the christians or the model of christ's resurrection shows us that we also will be raised someday our bodies will be raised in Acts chapter 4 verse 2 being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead the disciples the apostles here were teaching in Jerusalem and the doctrine they were teaching is a resurrection from the dead and it got everybody upset not everybody some believed it and followed and became people of the way People who were Christians later, they were called Christians. And I think of that because the central message that was found in the early preaching of the apostles as they went out was a resurrection from the dead. Not just Jesus' resurrection, but a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. It's a good thing because I don't have the power to do it. I can't raise you and you can't raise me. But he can do it. And he can because he did it. And he's the only one. He's promised to do that. I think it's important. And it also guarantees us or provides us really a foretaste of our heavenly home. The resurrection points to a better place. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. May I remind you of that? Our citizenship is in heaven. 
If you're one of his, that's where you belong. Now, I'm not saying you need to go there right now. Some people say, I don't know if I, I like what he's talking about because I, I kind of am happy right now. I don't want to go through death. No, I don't either. But my citizenship is in heaven. Someday I'm going to make it home. Someday I'm going to make it home. And those that have gone on before me, they're going to be there. That's so great a cloud of witnesses that is described in, um, in the book of Hebrews those that have gone on and lived before us and maybe those also that are on the other side and they're waiting also and someday you're going to make it home if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you won't. Your eternal home is not heaven, but a place called hell. A place of abject terror. A place of torment. A place of fear, of uh, and where, where death never truly releases you, but grips you forever. And I can't imagine wanting to send anybody there, even my worst enemy. And Jesus has provided a way that we not go there. Instead, we can go to be with him. He's our forerunner. Our citizenship is in heaven. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Man, our lowly body. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That, that includes death. Peter put it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's our destiny. That's what it's about. Someday we're going to be there. A Christian railroad engineer was speaking to a group of fellow workers about heaven. He said, I can't begin to tell you what the Lord Jesus means to me. In him I have a hope that is very precious. Let me explain. Many years ago, as each night I neared the end of my run, I would always let out a long blast with a whistle just as I came around the last curve. Then I'd look up at the familiar little cottage on the top of the hill. My mother and father would be standing in the doorway waving to me. After I passed, they'd go back inside and say, Thank God Benny is home safe again tonight. Well, they are gone now, and no one is there to welcome me. But someday, when I finish my earthly run, and I draw near to heaven's gate, I believe I'll see my precious Savior and my mother and dad waiting there for me. And the one will turn to the other and say, Thank God Benny is home safe at last. Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection, for the power to live this life as a new life, a new creation. Help us to be such people. Oh God, may you get all the glory. And we thank you that you're risen today. In Jesus' name, amen.